Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter where the writer to the Hebrews describes what it means to live a life of faith. At the end of Hebrews chapter 10, he quoted Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, emphasizing the statement, the just shall live by faith. Well, that's a wonderful statement, and it's a quoting of Habakkuk 2.4. But what does it really mean to live a life of faith? And so now, using many wonderful illustrations from the pages of the Old Testament, using the life of Abel and of Enoch and of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the writer of the Hebrews describes for us just what it means to live a life of faith. Now, when we get to verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 11, now we're going to focus on the life of Moses and how his life demonstrates to us and for all eternity what it means to live by faith. Let's take a look here, starting at verse 23. We read, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw He was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Here, the writer of the Hebrews refers to a situation that's described for us in some detail in the pages of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus describes how Moses was born at a time when the Israelites, the Hebrews, who were in slavery in Egypt, were increasing in strength and becoming a threat to their slave masters, the Egyptians. And at that time, Pharaoh was so threatened by the increasing strength of the Israelites that he commanded that every Israelite child be thrown into the Nile River. And this, of course, would have been devastating upon the population of the Jewish people who were slaves in Egypt. Well, there was at least one courageous family, and I don't believe it was only one, but scriptures indicate that the Jewish midwives were also helpful in this. But there was at least one courageous family that's described for us that said no to Pharaoh. You tell us to kill our children. We're not going to kill our children. God isn't into killing children. He's into families multiplying and being fruitful and having kids. So this is what God says. God says that they had the faith, the parents of Moses, to say no to Pharaoh, and we're going to keep our child alive. And of course, I love how it says, did you notice there in verse 23? They did it because he was a beautiful child. Well, every parent thinks their child is a beautiful child, and Moses' parents were no exception. They said, there's no way we're going to kill this child. And so by faith, they resisted. They resisted the efforts of the world around them to say, this is how you should live. These are the values. We're going to tell you what to do. And they said, no, we're going to rebel against the world and do what's right. This also indicates to us that Moses, when he was born, he had something very precious as an inheritance. He had parents who believed in the Lord. They had parents who lived a life of faith. And that was a precious heritage for Moses later on in his life. Now, let's look at verse 24. And we're going to spend some time on verses 24, 25, and 26. Because I think that they speak to something very key and instrumental for us in our modern day. Let's take a look. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now you notice that in verse 24. It describes the faith of Moses. Verse 23 is describing more so the faith of Moses' parents. But now in verse 24, we have the faith of Moses. And the example that the writer of the Hebrews first uses about Moses being a man of faith, living a life of faith, has to do with Moses recognizing who he was not, and then who he was, and then to whom he belonged. You see, the the book of Exodus describes for us the life of Moses. After his parents hid him for three months, then they said, well, look, we can't hide him any longer. You know, I mean, he's going to grow. How can we hide the fact that we have this child in disobedience to Pharaoh's command? And then they remembered, what did Pharaoh command us to do? He told us to take our babies and to throw them into the Nile River. They said, okay, we're going to put our baby into the Nile River. Now, we're going to build a little boat for him to ride in, but we're going to put him in the Nile River. And so that's exactly what they did. They built a little boat out of a basket and they put baby Moses in it and they sent him down the aisle. And you know from the story where he ended up. He ended up being taken in by the daughter of Pharaoh himself. And she adopted Moses as her own son. Therefore, Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh one of the mightiest men on the face of the earth at that time. He grew up with all the power, with all the prestige, with all the wealth and privilege it would mean to grow up inside the home of royalty. Now, Moses also had another distinct advantage, that when Pharaoh's daughter was looking for a nurse, for a nanny for Moses, God arranged that she hired Moses' mother to be his own nanny. That's pretty good. She goes, still got to mother Moses, but now she got paid for it. <laughs> How wonderful is that? Now, we're not told this specifically by the scriptures, but I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that Moses's mother used her influence, especially in his early life, to tell him about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to tell him who he really was. Can't you see Moses's mother whispering in his ear? You're not an Egyptian. You're an Israelite. You're not an Egyptian. You're an Israelite. So Moses grew up with a very interesting background. He was not an Egyptian, not at his core, not at truly who he was. I'm not just talking about genetics. I'm talking about in his core being, his mother from an early age told him who he really was. And so Moses was not an Egyptian, yet he grew up in the halls and the corridors of power, wealth and privilege in Egyptian society. But then he grew up. Did you see the phrase used in verse 24? When he became of age. When he became of age, he lived in the very privileged royal courts of the king of Egypt And he lived a life that was very different from the life of the common Egyptian, much less a Hebrew slave. Think about how different his life was. Think about how good his life was. Yet he was a Hebrew. And I emphasize this. 
This is not simply a matter of genetics. It's not a matter of ethnicity. More importantly, he was a Hebrew because of the faith that his mother passed on to him. Now, the conflict was very plain, wasn't it? You had all the power and prestige of Egypt on one side, and then you had his true identity as a covenant son of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the other side. Which identity would truly win out? Well, it all came to a crisis when Moses was 40 years of age. And by the way, Again, we don't know this from the Bible, but the ancient Jewish historian Josephus tells us that not only was Moses a prince in Egypt, but he was the crown prince in Egypt, that he was the one who was supposed to succeed Pharaoh on the throne. And Josephus also tells us, again, I want to make it clear the Bible doesn't tell us this, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Moses was also a mighty general who had won several battles on behalf of the Egyptians and their army. Well, in all of this context, we find out that Moses came to this crisis. He had all the fame, all the power, all the wealth that would go with his position. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, it tells us that one day Moses looked at his fellow Hebrews and it says, He looked at their burdens. And the original wording in the ancient language has the idea that he looked with compassion. He looked with emotion. He looked with great feeling. And this is what he said. He said, look at verse 24. When he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. No, stop. I look at the burdens of the Hebrews and something within me stirs that says that even though my life is great as an Egyptian, I am not an Egyptian. In my heart, I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm not an Egyptian and I won't think of myself any longer that way. Instead, I am an Israelite. I am a covenant son of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's a people to whom I belong. I belong among the people of God. I don't belong among the Egyptians. I'm going to throw my lot. I'm going to make my course with them, the despised people of God who are slaves to the Egyptians. You know why? Because that's who I am. And I can't escape who I really am. I think that there's something very powerful and very profound in the fact that Moses knew who he was. You see, that's not just a question that was relevant for Moses. I think that this is an important question for our own age. I think that in many ways, the culture... And the generations among us cry out and they want to know, who am I? Whom are the people to who I belong? And we see this urge, this this hunger of people to identify themselves with something or with somebody. I don't think it's any accident that it's been what in the last 20, 30 years or whatever. 
that there's been such a rise in the popularity of tattooing. Now, I'm not here to pass judgment on anybody's tattoos. That's between you and your family and your tattoo artist. I mean, I'm not going to get in the middle of that. But isn't it interesting how people are so anxious to brand themselves or something, sometimes literally brand themselves, otherwise just figuratively with the ink that goes into their skin. It's a very demonstrable way of saying, and many people very carefully choose out their tattoos. They say, I want this to proclaim something about who I am, or at least who I want to be. I want this to proclaim something about who I belong to. It's a statement. But, but you see this in lesser ways all over. We do it by the technology we adopt. You know, there, there's uh, iPhone people and Android people, and they identify, Right. You know, and there's people who just say, man, I'm not just a Mac user. I'm a Mac guy. It's not just I've got a tattoo. Man, I'm an ink guy. It's not just I like to drink a cup of coffee. I'm a coffee guy. Some of you are like that. You would think it blasphemy to drink a cup of Folgers. It's like, no, no way, man. That's not me. I'm a coffee guy. I've got to have it right. Now, look. Obviously, this question of identity is big. It goes all the way back to the time of Moses. And even before that, there's something deep within the human spirit, the human psyche that says, I want to know who I am. I want to know to whom I belong. But I believe that in the present age, it's an even more urgent and meaningful question than ever before. Listen, I'm old enough to remember in pretty good detail the 1970s and certainly the 80s. And for those of you who were alive back then, do you remember the big questions the culture was asking? I remember one big question that I don't think is really asked today. Back then, people want to know, are we going to survive tomorrow? There seem to be great nations and empires with their finger on a nuclear button. And people felt that they lived under the cloud of nuclear annihilation that could happen at any time. They felt that population was spinning out of control and ecological disaster was spinning out of control. And people want to know, is the world going to end? And at that time. People came forward with such strength and such eloquence to bring forth the scriptures and say, let me tell you what the Bible says about where the world's going. And thousands upon thousands of people came to Christ because we were able to connect what the Bible says to big questions that the culture was asking. Well, I think in today, the culture isn't so much asking, are we going to survive tomorrow? But people are aching to know. Who am I? To whom do I belong? And you know, the Bible speaks to those questions. It has answers for those things in our day and age. Listen, I find that these questions are so pervasive and so in, in, in depth in our culture today that I think that there's, it's connected to the fact that there's a growing group of people in our culture who identify themselves by their sexual conduct. They identify themselves by whom and with how they want to have sex. And in some ways, I scratch my head at that. Is this really the most important thing about a person with whom they would like to have sex and how they would like to have sex? Now, of course, 
I hope that nobody misunderstands me. Our sexual conduct is important. It's important to God. It's important to our families. It's important to ourselves. And God instructs us regarding sexual conduct in his word. And we need to listen to him. Yet, I still find it strange. When a person wants to identify themselves mainly in terms of their sexual conduct. And when I meet somebody who does that, this is what I want to say to them. I want to say, I think that I may think more of you than you think of yourself. You you want to reduce the identification of your life to this. Where I look at you as someone who's made in the image of God. Someone whom God greatly loves. Someone for whom Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive your sins and to give you the power of life transformation. That's how my heart echoes out to people. And so notice this. This is an important thing for ourselves and for our generation. I see something else here in these words in verse 24, where it says, when he became of age. You see, Moses, knowing who he really was, was connected with maturity. Moses only came to this place when he was grown up. And I think really knowing who you are and really knowing who you belong to, that this is a function of true maturity. I think it's possible to have that maturity as a relatively young person. And I think it's also possible to be old and years and not mature in that area. So we need to listen to what God has to say to us. Look at it again. Here, verse 24, you can't miss how he begins the verse where he says, by faith, Moses did this. In other words, it was by faith. Understanding your real identity, who you are as a son or a daughter in Jesus Christ. This is done fundamentally by faith. Faith. You see, I'm sure that in many ways Moses felt like he was an Egyptian. How could he not? He was raised in Egyptian schools. He was surrounded by Egyptian opulence. He was so familiar, so comfortable in that culture. There was no doubt many things within him that felt Egyptian. Yet he said that by faith, I know who I am. I am an Israelite and I will make my future with them. You see, he knew who he was not. I'm not an Egyptian, even though I'm surrounded it. But he knew who he was. I'm a son of the covenant that Yahweh made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knew to whom he belonged. He said, I belong among the people of God, even if sometimes they embarrass me. And I'm sure that more than once, some Hebrew slave embarrassed Moses to no end. Yet nevertheless, he said, this is who I am. You know, we must understand those same fundamental three things regarding ourselves and Jesus Christ. You see, when we consider who we really are in Jesus, what the Bible says about God's people, to be honest, it is so big, it is so majestic that we have a hard time taking it in. I mean, just very briefly, Who are you in Jesus Christ? Well, you're forgiven. You're made righteous with the righteousness of Jesus himself. You're adopted as a son or a daughter of God. You're filled with and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. 
The, the old man, the man patterned after Adam, he's dead and you must reckon it as so. Instead, you are a new man, a new woman with a nature that's patterned after Jesus Christ. You're called and you're gifted to serve Jesus and his people. And you have an important place in God's eternal plan for the ages. Now, either any one of those things taken individually or collectively are big. They're huge. They're sometimes beyond our comprehension. And so we have to take it by faith. By faith, we understand these things. But notice something else about how Moses did this. Verse 25, it says, choosing rather to suffer affliction. Moses knew this. When I embrace who I really am, a covenant son of Yahweh, that's going to bring some trouble into my life. Matter of fact, in choosing his true identity, Moses chose affliction. Choosing rather to suffer affliction is the phrase in verse 25. Same way today. You know, there is a price to be paid when you say, I will identify with Jesus and his followers. There is. In some parts of the world, people pay with their lives or their livelihoods that price. There are thousands of people in prisons or in torture across the world today because they're followers of Jesus Christ. Now, in our own culture, we really don't face that, do we? What do we face? We face embarrassment. We face scorn from the culture, which I'm not going to say is not a small price to pay. It is a good price to pay. It's significant. But matter of fact, virtually everybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ at some time or another is going to pay some price for being his follower. But when you really know who you are, I think we can do this. Notice the next thing about Moses. It's in verse 26. It says that he did this esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. You see, being aware of his identity brought Moses a new set of values. He said, let me weigh them in the balance. The reproach of associating myself with Messiah or the treasures of Egypt. Hmm, which is greater? Matter of fact, the writer of the Hebrews gives it away. Did you see that phrase in verse 26? It blew my mind when I thought about this phrase this week. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches. The shame and embarrassment of following Jesus, that's riches? Yes, it's riches. For Moses, it was. And he says, I will regard that as greater riches than all the treasure in Egypt. And let's get real, folks. He had access to a lot of treasure in Egypt, did he not? But he said, no, I'll do this. Now, how could somebody make such a calculation? Look, let's put away all the religious fancy talk. That's weird. That's weird to, on some level, embrace shame and embarrassment and say that's greater riches than all the treasure that a royal uh, prince has access to. How can someone do it? Don't miss the phrase in verse 26 where it says that he looked to the reward. What was the reward? He looked to eternity. You can't make this calculation unless you have an eye on eternity. If you really believe that this life is all there is and that there is no God, there is no eternity, then you're going to make a completely different set of calculations. But if you're wise enough to bring eternity into the calculation, you see, no, it's worth it. 
It's worth it for me to suffer some measure of shame and humiliation in this life if I can be rewarded in eternity. It's with it. It's worth it. As our persecuted brothers and sisters across the globe say today, it's worth it for us to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ because of eternity. They're not playing for this life alone, but they have their eye, just as it says there in verse 26, they look to the reward. You see, friends, doing this calculation gave Moses the ability to do this. And it all connected it to Jesus. I find it fascinating that it says there that he esteemed the reproach of Christ. Jesus didn't even live on the earth in Moses's day. Yet he looked ahead to Christ, the Messiah, and knew that he was connected to it. You see, friends, all of this identity business really only makes any sense with Jesus. And with Jesus, we can come to the place where we regard being joined to him greater riches than anything that we might suffer in this world. And in a great sense, Jesus is our identity. It isn't that we become him or or that we don't uh, retain our true self. No, in that sense, as we are connected to Jesus, identified in him, the goodness of his love and of his power becomes real in our life. And we have that great thing that's described in Romans chapter 8, that we are conformed into the image of his son. And that is our identity. Now, That's not where it ended for Moses, knowing who he was not, who he was, and to whom he belonged. But it continued on. Look at verse 27. There we read, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Again, he said, I will escape Egypt. I'll throw my lot with the children of God. Why? Because I can see with the eye of faith God who is invisible. Oh, no, he saw the reality of Pharaoh. He saw the reality of Pharaoh's retribution. He could see that with his natural eye. But of even greater reality to him was what he could see with the eye of the spirit, what he could see by faith. And that was God himself being a greater reality than any of those other things. But verse 28, it says, um, By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. You see, by faith, Moses directed Israel to say, sacrifice the Passover lamb, apply the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorways of your home. And the angel of judgment will pass over your house in judgment when he brings judgment all across Egypt. How did he do it? By faith. Friends, don't you think it takes a measure of faith to take the blood of a Passover lamb and apply it to your doorway and say, this will protect my family from death that's going to come in judgment upon the whole land. That takes faith. But Moses did it and he led the nation of Israel to do it. By the way, do you understand that this is the same faith that God calls you and I to today? God calls you and I to trust in the blood of his Passover lamb. The Bible uses the same imagery of the Passover lamb to look to Jesus and his sacrifice for us on the cross. 
where it might sound a strange thing, but it's no more strange than applying the blood of a Passover lamb to a doorway among the Hebrews in ancient Egypt. God calls you to put your trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross to be a substitutionary sacrifice for what you did. And so that God's judgment will pass over you and not rest upon you. By faith, Moses did that and led the children of Israel into it. And now look at verse 29, where he says this. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when the children of Israel went through the Red Sea, that took a lot of faith to do that, did it? Matter of fact, I'll say this. It took a lot of courage to do that. I don't know exactly what it looked like. I like the Cecil B. DeMille version where there they are in this great, you know, wide thoroughfare made through the Red Sea. And there are these mountainous walls of water on either side. You know, I know 100 feet, 200 feet in the sky. And you look at the water on either side and you make your way through and you think, man, that could come crashing down upon me at any moment. I don't want to step out in the middle of that. But that took courage to go out in the middle of it. And then he says something else in verse 29. Did you catch that? He says, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Did you know that the Egyptians who pursued the Israelites had the same courage to go out in the middle of the Red Sea? But they did not have the faith and it all came crashing down upon them. I think that's a very relevant thought when it comes to people who have not yet given their lives and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You might have courage. You might have the same courage that the Egyptians had to say, I'm going to go in the Red Sea, and your courage has done pretty good for you in life. You're a together person. You know what's going on, and maybe you're young, and you haven't really come to the achievements that you know you will to in life, but man, you're a courageous person. You've got some things going for you in this life, and that's good. God bless you, but I'll tell you this. If your courage is not paired with faith in the true and living God, it can all come crashing down upon you like it did for the Egyptians. Let me conclude with this idea, calling you back to what we studied in the very beginning about Moses and his identity. Because as I do this, I want you to know that when I'm finished speaking right here, I'm going to pray a prayer. And in the midst of that prayer, I'm going to invite people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to make a decision. And this is for those of you who have never put your faith in Jesus. You've never surrendered your life unto him and trusted in what Jesus did for you on the cross before. Or you've done it before. But to be honest, you believe that you have fallen so far away from that that you feel you need to do it again today. Now, what I want you to understand is this. You are never going to understand your true identity until you understand it in Jesus Christ. You'll search around and you'll try to identify yourself with this thing or that thing or this cause or this social movement. And some of those social movements may be great things in and of themselves. None of them satisfy who you were meant to be as a person made in the image of God. You were meant to You were meant to connect together with your Lord and God and do it through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
who died on a cross to pay the penalty and the guilt and the shame that your sin provided. And he paid all of that and he made a way for you to come and connect with God that is impossible outside of Jesus Christ. That's God's invitation to you. And I'm going to say in just a few moments when I pray, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to put their faith in Jesus to stand to their feet. When I give that invitation, I want you to respond to it. I want you as a person who's never made that decision before. Or again, as I said before, you have made it in the distant past, but it's so long ago and you feel you've fallen so far away from it. You said, that's got to be real for me today. I want to make a stand for Jesus again to put my faith in him and to be who I really am meant to be in the God who made me in his image. Let's pray together right now. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for who you make us to be in Jesus Christ. We think about how we could be described apart from Jesus. As lost, as blind, as needy, as lame, as your enemies, as prodigals. But Lord, I think about who you say we are and who we can be in you. Forgiven, adopted, redeemed, sealed, filled, gifted, on and on. Lord God, I pray for those among your people here today who need a fresh understanding of who they are not, of who they are, and of to whom they belong. And I pray that you would fill them with that, Lord, in Jesus' name. I pray that you would do the work that is beyond the ability of the words of any man to speak and persuade, but you would do something powerful and meaningful by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I think also of those who need to come to faith in Jesus Christ today. I pray that you would speak to their hearts now. I pray that you would give to them the gift of faith to say, yes, I choose Jesus. Yes, I want to be identified in him. I want to follow him and leave those other things behind. Friends, well, Heads are bowed and eyes are closed in reverent prayer. If that's you, if you want to put your faith in Jesus this morning, would you stand up so I can see you and pray for you? Bless you. Bless you, ma'am. Others here this morning. Bless you, sir. I want you to know that it's not the act of standing to your feet that brings us to you. No, it's the trust that you place in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. But it's important that be a faith that's demonstrated, not just thought about. So I'll give just a moment more for anybody else who wants to stand to their feet. Bless you. Those of you who are standing, I'm going to lead you in a brief prayer. I think you should say it out loud, even if it's in a whisper. 
so God can know and that you can know that you really believe. Jesus, I come to you knowing I need you. I come to you knowing that you can save me. I repent of the past. I trust you for the present. And I have hope for the future. I receive Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. And I ask that you give me new life in Jesus Christ. Do it, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.